The Way Out Podcast, episode 310. What is your name? My name is Leonard Lee Bouchel. Leonard, what was your substance of choice or DOC? My substance of choice was hedonism, Mm. pleasure, music, marijuana, cocaine, MDMA, and I also loved vodka and tequila and Heineken. I think there is a whole host of folks listening right now that can very much identify with that letter. Great. Oh, good. Well, hopefully, uh, but I haven't done any of those substances in quite a long time. If you keep one, what is your clean and or sober date? I keep a sober date of August 4th, 1994. Congratulations. August 4th, 1994. We're coming up on 28 years this coming August. Right. Yeah. Leonard, how do you serve the recovery community? I've been publishing a weekly newsletter for the last nine years called the Addiction Recovery E-Bulletin. And it's... uh, it's also a website, addictionrecoveryebulletin.org. Uh, we have 23,000 subscribers that get the email every week uh, with all the latest news and information, science, policy, healing, healthy, healthy stories about how to stay clean and sober or why you might want to get clean and sober if you're not. I've also been producing a real recovery film festival for 14 years in New York City and Los Angeles and Fort Lauderdale uh, around the country. It's it's films about what we're talking about, Um, behavioral illnesses or, or, or you know, process addictions, if you will, shopping, sex, television, internet, podcasts, if you will. Uh, and so we have, a, we have a, we get submissions from all over the world. Our next, thank God we're back in person this October in Los Angeles, October 21st to the 27th. If you're near Los Angeles, come on by. We're there for a week. Uh, the last couple of years, obviously we had a pivot to being Online, we had our own Real Recovery film channel, uh, which will continue. So we'll still be online and also back in person. And that you can find on the website, realrecoveryfilmfestival.org. And real is spelled R-E-E-L. Because when we started 14 years ago, we had to show 30, we we, we had to rent 35 millimeter film, film reels. Sure. And we have seen many changes since then. So now there are no more film reels, but uh, the films still look good and sound good. And uh, we hope uh, anybody near LA will, will check us out or check out the Real Recovery Film Channel. 
no matter where you are, you can watch the films. That's tremendous. The Addiction Recovery e-Bulletin sounds like a tremendous resource for folks who are either contemplating recovery, new in recovery, or in recovery to be able to identify potentially some things that can help them. That's why we started publishing uh, eight and a half, nine years ago. It's very informative, it's very entertaining. And I started it because when I was a drug counselor, I still am a drug counselor. I'm just not working in a facility right now. Uh, you know, I was given the task of doing group group sessions once a day. And I asked my supervisor, I said, where's the book of group topics that I can call upon? And he laughed and said, there is no book like that. Well, this newsletter, every week there are at least two articles on there that any counselor anywhere can print out and use as a basis for a really interesting group therapy session. Uh, you know, there's, there's also stories about sober celebrities, uh, about films dealing with alcoholism, television shows, there were more new TV shows this year dealing with people with alcoholism or, or drug addictions. If you're thinking of a show called Euphoria, uh, single drunk female is a, is, a, is a good show there was one called the uh, flight attendant about a flight attendant who's suffering from or enjoying uh, from alcoholism so it's very much in the media now and we we want to encourage people to you know it's it's, it's it also helps destigmatize the illness absolutely of, of addiction absolutely you know, we don't know if addiction is a choice or genetic or just a twisted finger of fate putting its finger on somebody and but we also know that anybody can stop using and anybody can stop drinking it's been done hundreds of thousands of times it, it's it's really a phenomena that it doesn't mean it's, you know, if you're abusing drugs today, it doesn't mean you're going to be abusing drugs next week. Possibly will, maybe will, but not necessarily, not a hundred percent. You know, anybody can change direction at any time. Couldn't agree more that recovery is possible for all of us. It's even contagious. When I had five years sober, my 19 year old son came to me and said, Dad, I think I need to go into treatment. <laughs> I said, okay. And, uh, you know, three weeks later, I drove him to a rehab and, and I said, like, if you don't like it after a week, I'll come pick you up because I know it's about attraction and not coercion. And luckily, thank God, one of the great miracles in my life is that he stayed for 28 days and he has never gotten high or had a drink ever since. That's amazing. Something I wish I could have given my family at that age, but I certainly did not. It took me a while to realize uh, this is going to kill me <laughs> eventually. Leonard, what does recovery mean to you? It means you stopped using drugs and alcohol 
and found something that hopefully you'll think will keep you alive for much longer than you would have lived if you kept drinking and using. I think so, that's a great answer. Thank you. Addiction is when you tell yourself you're not going to do something or take something and you do anyway. Yes. Absolutely. So when you use even when you don't want to. Yeah. You know, I used cocaine for 13 years every single day of my life. But I was only a cocaine addict for one year. You know, that 13th year. For 12 years every time I did a line or a spoon, I did it because I wanted to. But in that 13th year, I tell myself in the morning, I'm not going to get high until after dinner. And then I'd end up getting high after lunch. And I thought, hmm, I've lost control of my cocaine use. I'm doing it even if I don't want to. But that was scary. Welcome, Way Out faithful and first timers, to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this edition of The Way Out, I'm pleased to bring you my interview with author of the new book, Hi, Confessions of a Cannabis Addict, editor of the Addiction Recovery e-Bulletin, and producer of the 14-year-old Real Recovery Festival, Leonard Lee Bouchel. With 28 years of continuous sobriety, Leonard shares his journey to and through recovery to this point 
with extraordinary insight, combined with great storytelling, as you might expect from a newly minted author who's been sober as long as Leonard has been. One of the greatest pearls of wisdom Leonard bestows upon us is the phenomenon of sobriety, which has been invoked on this podcast more than a few times, yet bears highlighting nonetheless. As the term infers, sobriety is a term that describes our slow, but sure, emotional, spiritual, physical, and mental evolution in recovery that results in an increasingly sound mind, body, and soul. And the sounder we are in these areas of being, the more fulfilling and rewarding our recovery and ultimately our lives. So listen up. Leonard Bouchel, thank you so much for taking time to join us here on the Way Out podcast. You're the author of the new book, Hi, Confessions of a Cannabis Addict, editor of the Addiction Recovery e-bulletin, and the producer of the now 14-year-old Real Recovery Festival. And you're here with us, and I couldn't be more excited about it. We're going to talk about all of those things, plus your journey to and through recovery to this point. Before we do any of that, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience? Tell us a little bit about yourself, and we'll get started. Good morning, Charles. Or is it good afternoon? It is afternoon here in the Twin Cities. Well, perhaps it's good evening. Right. I'm sure your listeners uh, are, are, are up at all hours. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to be on this uh, awesome, awesome show. Uh, my name is Leonard Bouchel. I was born in the middle of the 20th century in a city called Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yes, it's where we, uh, where it's where the uh, Independence Hall, Betsy Ross's house. It's the Liberty Bell. It's where the, uh, what's that thing? The Constitution was written. It, it's it's a, a wonderful city to be from. I currently live in Los Angeles, California, uh, which is, which is uh, one of my favorite cities in America. I guess my favorite city would be San Francisco because I lived in Marin County for many, many years and got to drive over the Golden Gate Bridge uh, to go to concerts and restaurants, and uh, and it was magnificent. I do miss it from time to time. And let us not forget the joys of visiting North Beach and going to City Lights Books just as a pilgrimage. Mm. I wrote a book. I'm very proud of it. It's funny, it's sexy. It's invigorating, it's inspiring. And, and as Charles said, it's called Hi, Confessions of a Cannabis Addict. Uh, it is available, Barnes and Nobles, you can order it. Uh, Amazon has it uh, available 24 hours a day if you're a Amazon Prime member and you order it now, they, they, they could very well deliver it in eight or nine minutes. Indeed. Leonard. Yes, Charles. Tell us a little bit about what it was like for you 
growing up in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and then tell us a little bit about your first exposure to alcohol and other mood altering substances. Uh, if you don't mind, I could tell you a little by reading from the book. I would love that. Which, which, which you know, I, I spent uh, eight years writing. It was just published in November. And I'll start with the, with the, <laughs> it says, uh, opening montage. This is chapter one entitled grief like a torn dress should be left at home starts with a quote by Carl Jung. I am not what happened to me. I am what I choose to become. Mm. Opening montage, a camera descends through the delicious mists of a pot of simmering chicken soup at 4639 North 10th street, the house I grew up in. There I am having just been born into an idyllic Jewish family unit smack dab in the middle of the 20th century with a working father, a beautiful housewifey mother, and a strong, handsome three-year-old brother. I started life in the North Philadelphia neighborhood called Logan in a row house with mortgage payments my parents considered affordable. When mom and dad brought home their bouncing baby boy from St. Joseph's Hospital, my mother pressed her tender ear to my tiny chest and heard a heartbeat that was anything but regular. The next day, my mom called the delivery doctor and told him she'd heard something strange when she put her little ear to my, when she put her ear to my chest. The doctor had already detected a loud murmur associated with a bicuspid aortic valve disorder. The doctor didn't want to tell my parents right away about my defective heart and ruin the family's first night home with their new beautiful baby boy. There was an operation available to repair said defect, but it was in the 1950s and one out of every 10 kids who went under the knife to repair the errant heart valve never made it home to watch Howdy Doody. In those days, there was no heart-lung machine. The surgeon would have only three and a half minutes to replace the little piece of shit heart in my valve. And mom was not about to play beat the clock with a life-threatening experimental surgery but she was willing to bet that operating technology would advance faster than my valve's heart would retreat. Mom was certainly right on that estimation. Three weeks after I took center stage, my daddy dropped dead of a heart attack on his way home from working the night shift at the post office. He was 34 years old. Suddenly there was a gaping hole in our lives. No husband, no father, no breadwinner. Mom was grief-stricken and a frightened widow. Shock prevented her from breastfeeding, so at three weeks old, my first bartender 86 me. Mom had no job, and a mortgage became unaffordable. She was now confronted with a new reality. How was she to have the time to raise my brother and me into men when she needed to get a, five to, a nine to five job? Uh, I was a particularly large drain on my family's emotions. Before I could even walk, I was not only faced with a life-threatening heart condition, but a gnarly, breathtaking case of severe asthma, which ultimately led to numerous emergency room visits. You asked me about where I grew up, Charles. Yes. Logan. When I started to attend elementary school, I heard kids in... Oh, that's boring. Okay. 
No, it's not. Logan is built on a creek, existed in the middle-class Jewish ghetto for about 50 years before three square blocks sank into the mud, disappearing off the face of the earth forever. There is no old block for me to go home and visit, except through memories and family photographs. 10th Street will remain forever a shimmering universe of childhood adventures and fantasies, and where my creation started, my creation story started off with a death and a wheeze. I was very lucky. I lived in the same house. I'm not reading now. Um, I lived in the same house for the first 20 years of my life. And, I, and so that added a stability mm. that wasn't available in other aspects, meaning my health and, and other family situations, which I won't go into. But being in the same house for 20 years uh, was very comforting. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. I just thought none of our neighbors moved. We had the same neighbors for every year. If we saw someone we didn't know walking down the street, everybody would be at their window wondering who this person was. And so the same kids were in school every year. The kids I went to you know, first grade with ended up in my high school in 12th grade. So you really had, it was like an old village. It was, it was very, I don't know if that exists anymore, uh, where people stay that stable for that long. Uh, we didn't have a car. We never had a car growing up. So I learned how to take buses and the subway and I hitchhiked to high school every day for three years. The only way I could get to high school, other than the bus, which was boring, I would hitchhike. And my first, first, uh, my, my teacher, what is that called? The first period, my first period teacher, if I was late, she would understand that I, I, I didn't get a ride right away, but I never got a demerit for that. They just understood that that was, and of course, there were times when my asthma wasn't bothering me that I could ride my bike to school, which was not actually allowed back way back then. But of course I would do it anyway. And it was in high school that I discovered gambling. Mm. I, I became a compulsive gambler as a teenager. Loved playing cards, loved going to the racetrack, loved betting on baseball and football. Uh, basketball was almost too stressful. You know, basketball, you could be up until the then, third, third quarter and then just blow yeah. and then just, you, you couldn't really, you know, football, you're ahead by 14 points. You, you know, you feel pretty good about it. Baseball, you're ahead by five runs. You feel fit, but basketball was too stressful. Same way playing blackjack at the casino you know, like having that card flip over, you could get a heart attack if, it, if you suddenly go over. But I did it anyway. I did it anyway. And it would have been a big problem because I, I did steal to get money to gamble. It was, uh, it wasn't a, it, it was fun, I admit, but it was stressful for a young man to, uh, to be a compulsive gambler. But I realized that rather than taking $200 to the racetrack and inevitably losing, I could buy $200 worth of marijuana and end up with $250 mm. and win $50. And I thought, well, that sounds smarter 
than losing at the track. I wasn't, you know, I was, I was an avid gambler. I wasn't a great gambler. I had no secrets to success. I, I, I could read the Daily Telegraph if anybody out there goes to the track. You're in, in Minnesota. I've never been to a track in Minnesota. No, like to hit all the tracks on the East Coast. I was very proud to say how many racetracks I, I was at between Florida and Maryland and New York and, and Philadelphia. It was where I ended up actually spending a lot of time. Uh, and an 80 to one shot won the Kentucky Derby this year, in case your people don't read the newspaper. An 80 to one shot which meant if you bet $2, you get 160 back to your $2. Like the longest shot in, 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 in Kentucky Derby history. Uh, it didn't win the Preakness, the race they have a couple weeks later. Uh, you know, everyone's heard of the Triple Crown. It's the, it's the you know, Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes. And very rarely does the same horse win all three races. Be that as it may, uh, <laughs> I know most people think horses are to ride. Well, to me, they were to bet on. Leonard, you talked about what it was like growing up, experiencing the trauma to the family with the loss of your father at such an early age, but express such gratitude for being able to live in the same house within a tight knit community that provided that stability. You talked a little bit about your introduction to marijuana after your experience with gambling. Tell us a little bit about what your experience was with substances and ultimately addiction. Marijuana, hashish, hash oil are things that I believe were given to us through the grace of the Almighty. And the first time I smoked three hits of pot is what we called it back then. You might call it ganja now. You might call it weed. You might call it sativa. 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 That's a combination of sativa and indica. I think I just coined a new, a new strain. <laughs> sativa. Uh, yes, we had purple marijuana. But anyway, hashish. Uh, the first time I smoked three hits of the joint, my life went from black and white to color. Mm. And it was gorgeous. And I ended up wearing rose-colored glasses for the first 20 years of my using weed. I think I smoked pot every single day for 26 years because I wanted to see the world a little bit more colorful than it, than it actually was. And now I appreciate nothing between me and reality, which I feel is a trip unto itself. But the, so it went from pot to hashish, because hashish actually tastes better and it's more exotic. Um, 
It comes from Lebanon. It comes from Afghanistan. It comes from Nepal. It comes from Morocco and Pakistan. And Philadelphia, for some reason, was the sort of the gateway for a lot of different hashish dealers. And when I was in college, the first, my first and only year in college, there was a shortage of hashish in Philadelphia. We couldn't get any. Uh, I called everybody I knew in New York City. Do you have any hashish? Nobody had any. So I got my friend Joe Brodsky to agree that we couldn't live without smoking dope. And the fact that we had been smoking red Lebanese hash, we noticed that Lebanon is right next to Israel. And we figured there must be some mules or camel smugglers, or smugglers with mules and camels bringing hashish into Israel. And uh, since we were Jewish, we knew we could go there, hopefully without bringing a lot of attention to ourselves. So we took a 12-hour flight from Kennedy to Tel Aviv and did, in fact, uh, score some hashish and uh, fly home with it three weeks later. There's a great chapter in the book about having to buy girdles and, and talcum powder, powder, what it's like scoring in a foreign country. Uh, but the point is we could not even imagine going a day or two without getting high. So our families thought we were going to Israel to discover our roots. Our friends thought we were going to make money, but we were actually just going to score. We actually just had to go. There's an expression in the 12-step world, going to any lengths, you know, going to any lengths not to use drugs or not to drink. Well, we went to any lengths to get drugs. So we, we, we could, we could uh, there's, there's some very interesting, dramatic stories in the book about what happened uh, when I got back. So that's my first real love of drugs. I didn't drink. I didn't like the taste of it. Uh, even years later, I couldn't never drink during the day. It made me tired. It gave me a headache. And I didn't want to be tired. I didn't want a headache. Uh, so it was, it was drugs for me. And then, of course, uh, five years after smoking my first joint, I was at my family doctor. And he knew I had a heart issue. He knew I had a valve that was uh, a little smaller than the rest, and it was working overtime. Anyway, I won't go into the whole cardio vascular system of, of heart valves. But I asked him, I said, would, would doing cocaine be dangerous for me? And he said, well, honestly, he says, as long as you don't shoot it, because then you could get an infection from the needle and die right away. He says, but if you only snort it, it's okay. And I literally went from the doctor's office in downtown Philadelphia five blocks away to my friend Eric's apartment 
knocked on the door. He opens it. He says, hey, how you doing? I said, good. Do you have any Coke? He said, of course I do. I said, I'm ready. And he got it out and he starts chopping it. And I'm eating just the chopping, the razor blade going through the crystals of cocaine sounded a little like John Coltrane meets Mozart with a little John Cage thrown in. And just the very sound of the razor going through the little chunks of crystal was like, it sounded like the heavens were singing hallelujah. And then I, I did the first little sniff and it tickled. It tickled and amused me. And it made my, and it was a taste to it. It was a, a taste of smoking it. Forget about smoking it. That's, that's dangerous. But the, those first few sniffs were like, hmm. Suddenly, my colorful life that, I, that the marijuana had given me became a three-dimensional technicolor life. And everything came into even sharper focus. And it felt like somehow I was ingesting a little bit of South America. And it was a feeling I would continue to have on a daily basis, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, for 13 years, every single day. It was just part of the landscape. So like I said, I smoked my breakfast, I drank my lunch, and, my, and I snorted my dinner. Or I drank my dinner, because at night I could drink, and with a little white powder, it's amazing how much vodka or tequila you can drink. And eventually I became addicted to blackouts. I knew if I did enough of this and enough of that, I could literally function but not remember anything. I didn't do it to drive. I, I did it to party. Remember that old expression, hey, you want to party? Uh, well, I loved to party. And it was something that you know could have killed me, could have killed me many times. And one of the joys of being clean and sober and working a 12-step program in various 12-step groups yeah. that I'm probably not going to die from an overdose mm. or, or, or being drunk and falling down and hitting my head on the fireplace and bleeding out alone. That, that would have been, you know, I have a couple sons and hopefully they will see me die a natural death one day and not some tragic, tragic, tragic demise. Wouldn't that be nice to die naturally? You know, living naturally, dying naturally. Indeed. Leonard, the way that you describe what marijuana did for you and then subsequently what cocaine did for you, I relate with on an intimate level, though I never did mm. cocaine because my younger brother who could have cared less what I did one day came home and said, Char, don't you ever, and I mean ever, ever, ever 
try cocaine. And I'm mm. in the middle of making a sandwich. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him. Okay. Why? And this is in high school. And he said, because it makes you feel like God. Mm. For five minutes and all you want to do after that five minutes is feel like that again and he walked out of the kitchen and that was enough for me i knew just enough about my addictive and compulsive personality to believe that cocaine was not a good idea for me but i could very much relate and i think so many of us can with the way that you describe what marijuana did for you which was put life in color and then cocaine make it this technicolor 3d world and all you wanted to do was do it again and it ultimately got to a point for you where you decided that you needed to stop what happened that caused you to believe that you needed to stop and to believe that was a problem. The love of my life came over one day and she said, I don't like you doing cocaine because I never know what kind of mood you're going to be in. I stopped that day because a friend of mine was getting MDMA in little capsules from Berkeley, California. And we realized we could take them out of the capsules, crush them up and snort them. So luckily I was able to replace the cocaine with snorting ecstasy. Uh, Not every day, because don't want to be on ecstasy every day, but every few days. And in fact, it was the ecstasy that got me to drive to the rehab 27 years ago. That was the drug I, I couldn't, control, so to speak. Uh, you know, and, and, and William Burroughs, the writer, author of Naked Lunch and Junkie, says you can't stop an addiction, you can just replace it with another one. So I got off coke by snorting ecstasy, not what most drug counselors or doctors or psychologists would prescribe, uh, but it worked for me. And then I realized that it was ecstasy that took me uh, to my bottom uh, in, in various in various ways and and uh, that's why I ended up going to a rehab uh, but it was also the love of this woman who said I don't want I don't want you being high on coke when I come over mm-hmm. and I and I would have done anything for her mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. Uh, luckily she liked ecstasy too and she was always on mushrooms. I never mentioned that to her. Okay, you're always on mushrooms. I'm just on, I'm just on coke. That's like predictable. Anyway, there was a, you know, it was a lot of drugs and rock and roll and jazz and, and, and uh, books and poetry and plays and music going on at that time. It really was the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. It was the 80s. I mean, I didn't get sober till 94. So the 60s sort of ended for me 
you know, the second day I was at the rehab and suddenly all desire for drugs left me. Mm. Just gone, mm. gone. And the yeah, Japanese have an aphorism. They say, at its extreme, everything turns to its opposite. And I think that's what happened to me. I did show God that I had the intention of, of quitting drugs by going to the rehab. I, was, I didn't go to the quit marijuana, that's for sure, but that happened too. And two days after getting there, before I did any of the 12 steps, before I met with my counselor, I walked outside and all the desire for drugs left me and, and hasn't come back and hasn't come back. And at the time I was screwed. I was totally, you know, drugs were my life. There weren't drugs in my life. I was in the life of drugs. Every day had something to do with drinking or getting high. That's what, hence the name of the book, High. Uh, That's such an amazing experience that you talk about two days into treatment, completely losing the desire to drink yes. or use. Yes. After being brought to your knees, ultimately by MDMA, but mm -hmm. really playing addiction whack-a-mole there for a while, which I could certainly relate to. Yes. I'd put one down and another one would pop up and I'd put that one down and this one would pop up over here. So I could very much relate to that experience. You get yes. into treatment, you lose the desire completely to ever drink or use again. Let me make clarify that I lost all desire to do drugs, but I did not lose the desire to drink. Okay. Okay. And my second day out of rehab, I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting because I heard my girlfriend was going to be there. And it wasn't to, to go to the meeting. It was just to see her. Mm. And the speaker said something that resonated with me. And I thought, hmm. I haven't had a drink for 28 days that away, you know, I was away sure. at the rehab or maybe now it's like 30 days without a drink. Uh, and I thought, let me try it for a year. Let me try not drinking. Cause I like the meeting and I thought, well, gee, I'd rather go to the meeting than drink. I thought this is more interesting. And it wasn't just to see the girlfriend at this point. It was for, the energy and the laughs, the camaraderie, the fellowship, if you will. It was just interesting. It was, you know, I laughed and people shared and I would cry. And I was suddenly getting, you know, full range of my feelings back. And I thought, hmm. Uh, and then ultimately, I had to see alcohol as a liquid drug. It's a, it's a, it's a liquid drug. It's a drug. It's a liquid drug. So it's sort of fool. It could have fooled me. Uh, but once I perceived it as a liquid drug, I knew I could never, or that I would never want, I don't want to drink ever again. There's, there's no, there's no upside to drinking. 
uh, I couldn't be any higher than I am now. So I don't, I think drinking would ruin it. Yes, it would be social. It'd be nice to, you know, sniff the wine at a table with some friends at dinner. But obviously I'd rather maintain my specialness, my uniqueness. I think I started drinking, using drugs to, at the time was to be unique. And I think I stay clean and sober now to be unique because it's a very few people in the world live without drugs or drinking. We're very select chosen people, I believe. It's like monks and Mormons. Who else doesn't have a glass of wine? or a sip of champagne at a wedding, or at, at communion, a little wine. Uh, but the people who have, like myself, taken a vow through fear or, or, or through fear or, I don't know what the opposite of fear is, because this is the better mousetrap. Uh, the 12-step program is the better mousetrap. I mean, if the trick is to get through life healthy and happy, uh, if you can do that drinking and using, God bless, my hats are off my hats. My hat is off to you. If you can, it's wonderful. I, I times I do miss being part of society in general. Uh, you know, when I'm at Dodger Stadium, and everybody's having a beer but me. You know, I do feel a little left out, but it's 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 better than being uh, drunk on the way home. Uh, and I hear they have eighteen dollar beers now at the, uh, <laughs> at the at the, at the uh, wherever the Lakers play. Uh, so. As I was saying, indeed, you know, Leonard, the way that you illustrate your experience with the 12 step program and the 12 step recovery community, it's really beautiful because you listen to a speaker at the first meeting that you attend. Yes. Who shares this experience, strength and hope around yeah. alcohol and mm -hmm. you have this new enlightening experience that maybe just maybe alcohol is not for you either and you launch into this experiment which is really very much what i did as i embarked on my 12-step journey it was an experiment and mm -hmm. i just knew in my soul that everything that I had done up to that point wasn't working. And I saw people in those rooms that drank like I drank, used like I used, thought like I thought, felt like I felt, and they got better. And so I started doing what they did. If they got a sponsor, I got a sponsor. If they worked the steps, I worked the steps. If they made their bed, I made my bed. For first 25 years, I had two commitments a week for, for, for years, whether it was making coffee or setting up chairs or being the greeter. I love being the yeah. 
leadership person who would help people celebrate 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, six months, nine months, birthdays, love bringing a cake every, it's quite, it's quite, I mean, people call it a fellowship. Yeah. Uh, I called it something else, but I just, uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a very interesting cult. It's a community. It's a community, uh, and it's different in every city. And hopefully, uh, it will stick around for it. Just Alcoholics Anonymous just celebrated 87 years on June 10th. That's pretty good. Yeah, it made it through a couple war, you know, wars, and just made it through the pandemic, which hopefully is going to be ending soon. Although maybe they say it's going to hang on a, a little forever. I don't know. Uh, but I say, I say, I, my declaration is the pandemic is over unless you get sick. That's probably the right answer. Leonard? Yes, sir. Why did you write your new book Hi, Confessions of a Cannabis Addict. And what do you hope folks get out of the book? Hmm. I hope they laugh. I hope they laugh. Uh, I hope they're entertained. I hope that anybody who's still smoking pot after 30 years might see that quitting could open up a world to them that they never fathomed, uh, that they thought, you know, the great quote, you know, when I was 18, marijuana gave me wings. And when I was 50, it took away the sky. Mm. Uh, it's a mediocre drug for, for elder, for, for middle-aged people, for young people, it's wonderful. Uh, but eventually it's, 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 a, it's, it's, it encourages me. It encourages mediocrity. You're not using it to write songs anymore, or, or, or to you know, write or whatever it is that you used to use marijuana as a tool for. Now it's just uh, it's. You know, I think it, it says in the book is like you know if you have a great day at work and you're a pothead, you come home and smoke a joint. And if you have a really bad day at work and you're a pothead, you come home and smoke a joint. It's, it neutralizes. You know, and, and there's the part in the book where on 9-11, I didn't have a TV, so I went to a friend's house to watch the tragedy and watch the towers come down over and over. And she was smoking a bomb. And I'm thinking, she's getting high to watch people die. And I started crying because I had given up pot like a couple of years before that. And I thought I would be smoking pot to watch people die if I was still smoking pot. And I was so relieved to see that I could just have the raw emotions of whatever that day did for people uh, and not be high to watch 9-11 and Tower 1 and Tower 2 fall over, yeah. over and over. But I would have been smoking pot to have watched that. And it's not a Hollywood uh, mega 
you know, end of the world movie. It was really happening. Uh, so I, I think, you know, having a drink for that might have made sense because you want to sort of, because it hurts, but getting high to watch the World Trade Centers fall down with people inside would have been horrifying to me. But I would not have quit pot at that realization. So it's uh, so hopefully people will read the book, and and uh, and if they've quit drugs and drinking, they're going to be even happier that they did, because they'll see how going in reverse could be disastrous or not interesting. It's not, you know, it's passe. Drugs are passe. Uh, if you're an alcoholic. It is what it is, uh, but there are solutions. There is a way to quit anything that you think is killing you. You'll still have fun and you'll find new ways to have fun. Uh, and maybe fun won't be your primary concern anymore. And maybe hedonism will look different uh, and not the same. I, I wrote the book to, to leaves something for my two sons to read and get to know me better, which they already do, but they're very proud of me. And I wanted to do something that it was difficult. It was difficult and I'm very proud of it. And, it, and I wrote every word. There's no ghostwriters. There's no, there's, there's no help in that regard. I painstakingly wrote this book by hand. I don't type. I wrote it by hand. You wouldn't know, you wouldn't know it. it it's a, I hear it's a real page turner. You'll flow right through it, but it took a lot of work to make it feel like that. Um, and it helped get me to meet people like you, Charles. It got me on this nifty pot. How many different platforms is the podcast available on? Over 20. Over 20. So I too many to count. Oh, good. All right. Well, hopefully someone will go to Amazon and buy the book. Hi, Confessions of a Cannabis Addict and leave a review on Amazon. That could be helpful. I know there's a bunch of very positive reviews up there now, but we could always use a few more. I'm just starting to get the wheel of promotion going with your help and, and other people. I did a public reading uh, on Friday. I forget. You know, I lose days of the week. Anyway, this is Friday. No, Wednesday. It was Wednesday. The weekend is coming up. Although when people listen to this, it could be any time of the day or the month or it could be any year. This, this will be archived. It will. Way beyond my passing. It will indeed, Leonard. Leonard, I can so much identify with your relationship with marijuana. Although alcohol was my first love and ultimately my downfall, mm-hmm. I was a regular marijuana user all throughout high school. And as you related that marijuana yeah. was always 
this neutralizer, regardless of what was happening in your life. I very much relate to that. It softened the very sharp corners of my emotional turmoil that I was dealing with as a teenager who lost his mother at age 11, but it also enhanced life when I wanted enhancement. So it did both things, but ultimately it got in the way of any meaningful connection to myself and other people. So what I thought was an enhancer and a aid to anesthetize the rough edges ultimately ended up very much getting in the way. And you very eloquently talk about that on this podcast, which is great. And in your new book, High Confessions of a Cannabis Addict. We have some closing questions for you, Leonard. Are you ready? I am indeed. What does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of? I I do keep a journal at night. Every single night before I go to sleep, I write down what I did that day, who I saw that day, what film I went to, what show I went to, what restaurant I ate at. Uh, That's been going on for 25 years. So I have many, many books of my life because I, I suddenly had a fear that if I didn't write it down, it didn't happen. Uh, and, and I would look back at my life and there'd be nothing there because it's so intangible. Uh, and since I wasn't making sculptures or painting pictures or laying down tracks to a great rap song, I write down what I do every day at the end of every day. I love that. My son journals every night as well. So that's really great. Cool. It's cool. And before the COVID era, I was going to uh, a meeting of some kind once. uh, No, no, not like three times a week. Three times. I went to 12 step meetings. And. and I publish a newsletter with stories about addiction and recovery you know, every day of my life. It's my day job. It, it's not a five-day-a-week job. It's a seven-day-a-week job. And that keeps me very aware and in touch with the, with, with the 108,000 overdoses last year, primarily younger people with fentanyl and heroin and Oxycontin. I'm very aware that the government and big pharma colluded to to addict uh, so many Americans because there's no profits in sobriety, but there is profits in addiction. Uh, but my my daily practice is, you know, I do light a stick of incense for God every morning because it's sweet. And I want God to have something sweet for me. That's absolutely beautiful, Leonard. What book or piece of recovery literature had the biggest impact on your recovery? Be Here Now by Ram Dass. 
That is a way out podcast first. So thank you for that. What is the best piece of advice you've received in recovery? Let me think about that. The best. Uh, it wasn't so much an advice, but I had when I had about three years sober, coming out of a meeting, a friend, a, a guy who wasn't a friend yet, he said, you know, you're still convalescing. You know, you had an illness and you're still convalescing because, you know, when you have three months sober or six months, you think you're going to be on top of the world. You think you're going to be a giant. You think you're going to be uh, Hercules, but you're not. And you, and you want to rush time. Slow briety is a great term. You know, you have to practice slow briety. I wanted to, you know, when I had six months, I wanted to wake up and have a year. But you can't. I got 27 years. Ironically, with the greatest cliche, one day at a time. One day at a time, I put together 27 years. And it's very doable. It's like a little nibble. All you have to do is one day of not using or drinking. And that is a success. I would pat myself on the back for the first couple of years. If nothing else, at the end of the day, I would literally pat myself on the back and say, wow, you went another day without drinking or using. So when someone said, hey, you're still convalescing, I thought, okay, give myself a break. Don't say this ain't a marathon. So maybe that's the advice. I love that slow briety and one day at a time. <laughs> Both great pieces of advice. What is yeah. the greatest challenge you've had in recovery? Uh, the greatest challenge I've had in recovery, making a living. Perfect answer. What is the greatest success you've had in recovery? Having this book I wrote published. That is the greatest, I mean, the greatest success. I don't want to say my son, who's, you know, who went to treatment at 19, now has 20 years of sobriety. That's like a gift beyond gifts. I don't have to worry about him taking strange pills at a disco. There probably aren't any discos or driving drunk or snorting anything or popping pharmaceutical pills because they came from a doctor. It's all bullshit. Uh, so my, uh, that, that's, that's, that's my answer. Is that Absolutely. a good answer? Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. What song symbolizes recovery to you? Ain't No Stopping Us Now. I love it. That's great. That's a new one. Thank you, Leonard, so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Way Out podcast. This has been tremendous. Everything that Letter talked about will be in the show notes. So check them right now for the song, for the piece of recovery advice. And thank you, everybody out there at Way Out Podcast Land. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share 
at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.